and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we're joined by our company's new vice president of baseball, Bobby Scales. The name might sound familiar. He played two seasons for the Cubs, played almost every position, had a very long minor league career. He'll talk about his playing days, but also about the different baseball jobs you might hear about, but you might not know what they do, jobs he's had, things like field coordinator and director of player development. It's a good chance to learn about those jobs. Bobby also talks about the groups he's involved in getting more Black men and women involved in baseball behind the scenes, and he'll explain why he's now with SIS. Enjoy. All right, so standard opening question for our guests here is always, can you remember the first time that you made a great defensive play? And tell us about it. The first time I made a great defensive play. I mean, I'm not going to go all the way back to like Little League or high school. That's what we like. That's what you want? Okay. Yes. Um, goodness. Okay. I remember, okay, so I was 10 years old. I was playing, my team, ironically, was the Pirates that year. And my coach was awesome. He was a young dude. He was just starting his family. Long story short, I missed, so the league I played in, you had a draft. You had to go to the tryout day or whatever, and they assess you, and then they, they whatever. Well, I had, I don't know what it was, but I missed the tryout. I think I signed up late. My dad signed me up late or whatever. And Anyway, I just got placed on this team. Well, I got placed on the best team. Our team was a machine. We were unbelievable. Our coach was fantastic. Young dude. I think he was like 29 at the time. And he was just trying to start his, you know, starting his family. And we're playing in like the, the semifinal game of the league, right? We had lost one game all year playing in the semifinal game of the tournament. And I was playing shortstop and this guy hit a pop-up down the left field line. And our, our left fielder, I don't eat out to lunch. I can't even remember, but I made this running over the shoulder catch about halfway down the line. I caught it over, over my shoulder, you know, Willie Mays style over my shoulder and turn. And the guy at third base was trying to tag up and score. And I remember I turned and I just fired a strike home to, to our catcher, a kid named Brandon Wright. I'll never forget him. And we got him out the plate and we ended up winning the semifinal game and we ended up winning the championship game. And we were Roswell Parks and Recreation 10-year-old champions that year. The Pirates beat Seminoles in the final. Yes, I remember that. Very nice. I still remember all my Little League. I remember my Little League championship as well. There you go. So let's let's get to the, to your, we're going to skip over a few things here, but let's get right to your, your pro stuff. You had nearly 4,000 professional plate appearances before making the major leagues. With yeah. much of that a triple A, how did you get through it? And I know the easy question to ask here would be, how did it make you a better player? I don't want to know that. I want to know how it made you a better person. You know, I know you wanted to skip over to the pro stuff, right? But but I would be remiss if I didn't say how I got there in relation to answering that question, right? I, you're look, you're talking to a guy who got cut from his high school team as a freshman. I didn't make even make the JV. I didn't make. I made the JV as a as a as a sophomore. Never played. End up getting on the varsity, and I was the last guy to end up playing on the varsity that year. And so I, I was accustomed to having to wait my turn. College, I had to walk on. I had to wait. Freshman year, I had a chance to DH, but I didn't really play in the field. Sophomore year, I was a starting DH until our shortstop got, you know, had got an injury and then we moved our second baseman over. I had to wait, right? I wasn't a first round pick. I was a 14th round pick. And even when I was a 14th round pick, I had, you know, I had to wait. I had to wait for someone to get hurt. I had to wait for someone to just perform so poorly over a length of time that it was my, that I got my, got my opportunity. So yeah, I was accustomed to waiting, unfortunately. And I knew that over the test of time, that if I did what I was supposed to do, I controlled what I can control and I stayed ready, stay ready. You know, there's an old adage. If you don't have, you don't have to get ready. If you stay ready, stay ready. Your time is coming. 
And yeah, 4,000 at-bats later, my time came. And when I got there, I was ready for it. And so it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy constantly having to wait, constantly having to wait. And you don't want anybody to fail. Like, I'm I'm just not that guy. I'm not going to wish failure upon my opponents. I'm going to wish that I get my opportunity, hope that I get my opportunity. And when I do get it, just understand you're not getting it back. That was always my mentality towards it. I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to fail. But I'm going to find a way in the lineup. And once I do, you're not getting your spot back. And that that narrative happened season after season after season after season after season. It was my sixth year in the minor leagues. I had I was a free agent and I signed with Philly in 2006 before I left spring training as an everyday player like on a AAA team or on any team. And I continued to be that throughout the year. That was the first time. So. The thing that really kept me going is I would you you see players right you watch players play you play against them in a series maybe you played against this guy in college and you see guys climbing the ladder and when you get to triple A you see guys going to the big leagues and you're like this dude is not a better baseball player than me and I refuse to I refuse to believe that on any level he's not better and that's what kept me going was that was was the was patience in a sense but then the the fire to prove that I was better than some of the guys that I you know had competed against. We'll get to what you're doing now in, in just a little bit. But first, your major league highlights. Got to get, got to talk about those. Your first hit. Tim Lincecum, fastball right down the middle. Actually, it was away. But, you know, the first, the first at bat was, you know, so I was hitting, I think, seventh in the order that day. And the night before, this is an interesting story, too. I'll get to that in a second. But Lincecum threw me for first pitch heater. I fouled it off. I was trying to hit it on the wavelength. I was trying to hit a homer. Like, I was really... Like if he's going to throw me a fastball and I'm going to try to hit a homer in my first swing, for sure. I followed it straight back. And then I think he threw me a fastball in, 1-1, one, one, fastball away, fouled off, 1-2, change up down, didn't go fishing for it, 2-2, two, two, curveball, I fouled off, 2-2 two, two again, fastball in, 3-2, and then snapped off Mr. Nasty, 3-2, strike the ball, breaking ball. It was it was nasty. That was my first at bat. Second at bat was a fastball right down, outer third. I hit it to left field. Fred Lewis came up. I was going to, I was going to friend Lewis came up and threw a, a, a good throw in the second base. And I stopped because I would have got thrown out, but that was, that was how that happened. It was fun. It stays with you. You could see it when we're audio only, but you could see it in your eyes that you were watching that moment take place. You and Aaron Boone <laughs> able to recite every single at bat, I imagine, of your careers. First home run. First homer, Edwin Moreno pinch hit against the Padres on May the 12th. Jake Peavy started that game. I think we were, like I said, it was a pinch hit at bat. It was, I want to say the seventh inning. We were actually up two to one at the time. And one, the, the thing about pinch hitting, man, is they're, they're, relievers aren't going to mess around. They're going to come right after you. And you can't mess around either because you've been sitting on the bench for however long during the day. And, and back then in Ridley, there wasn't a really good place to warm up. And the clubhouses were so small and narrow, there wasn't a good spot to warm up. So you did the best you could whether it was, you know, like lifting some weights, like some lightweights just to get the blood flowing or, you know, get a medicine ball or try to throw it against the wall in the tunnel. You just figure out a way to get loose. And I, the first pitch he threw me was a fastball up and out over the plate. I got on it and, and hit it out. Now I knew I hit it. I've hit balls like that before. The only thing is obviously when you're in Wrigley at night, early in the season, the wind's coming from all different kinds of ways. So I didn't have a firm grasp at that point that that ball was going to be out, but it went about, I mean, probably 10 rows deep. I mean, I got it, but I didn't realize it. So I was rolling around i was like it was like a, it might have been a one it might have well have been a ball that one hopped the wall because i didn't really realize 
And then once I realized it was a homer, uh, I just kept going. I didn't break stride. So I just stayed in that, that probably got uh, like a three quarter, a three quarter sprint all the way around the bases. The interesting thing is if you listen to the Cub audio, they had uh, the, the Northwestern football coach, uh, Pat Fitzgerald in the booth. And he's like, hang on a second. Does this guy got it? He's got the eligibility left or what? Because he's rolling around these bases, man. And, and I was excited. And I, I, Dempster and Derek Lee gave me a bunch of stuff for it, but that's okay. Seven for 17 career as a pinch hitter, by the way. Yeah. Proud of that. Proud of that. That's a ref- honestly, okay. And that's the thing. That's a reflection of, of who I was in my career. I always, I grew up in a national organization with the Padres. My second organization was a national organization with the Philadelphia Phillies when I played in Scranton in 06. And when you were me, when you're that kind of player, in National League games in the minor leagues back then, you played National League rules. When you played an American League team, you played American League rules and you had a DH. A lot of my at-bats came from pinch hitting. And so you have a choice. You you can be mad about it and, and moan and groan about the fact that the only opportunities you're getting are to pinch hit. Or you can be like, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to do something cool, and I'm going to do it. And I was fortunate enough to, to have some really good guys I played with that served as mentors that helped me learn how to pinch hit. And so... When I got to the big leagues, I knew that was going to be my job and I made the most of it. Do you want to tell us what happened after you hit the home run? Yeah. So it was funny. So, you know, where we were in the order, a lot of times, even after a pinch hit, you have to kind of stay on, on alert because you may get double switched for it. This, this, it, it hurts my soul that we're not going to see stuff like this anymore, but you have to kind of stay on alert for the double switch. So I was hitting for the pitcher and I hit the homer. I come in, I'm buzzing, man, I'm buzzing. And so I stay in the dugout and Alan Trammell, gives me the, you know, kind of the, the, the throat swipe sign, the universal signal of you're done. And so at that point I went back into the clubhouse and I, I just took my shoes off, my cleats off. And I was going to ter- change back into my, my turf shoes and just put a jacket on. And the, the guy comes up and shakes my hand and he's from doping control for MLB. He says, Hey man, that's, that's awesome. Congratulations. I heard your story. He goes, yeah, but we got, we got to, you know, you got to test right now. I go, all right, whatever, dude, come on. And he goes, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Can you get your, you know, your ID, your driver's license and and give it to me? Cause we got to test you drug test. You. I was like, are you serious? He goes, yeah. Like, I was like, come on, like whatever, you know, I was like, okay. So I, I had nothing to hide. I wasn't <laughs> just nothing, but, but oatmeal and uh, oatmeal and oatmeal and steak did my business. And that was that. <laughs> and certainly with Ryan Dempster, you would have figured that could have been a prank. Do you have no favorite question. teammates? Oh, I mean, I, I've got a lot of, a lot. I've been, I was very fortunate to play with a lot of good dudes. At every step of the way, there's people from my rookie ball team that I continue to talk to to this day. But at the major league level, obviously, I only play with one team, but everybody on that team treated everybody with respect. I mean, Dempster was unbelievable, jokester, prankster, but when but prepared, he was he was always prepared to do his job and pitch every fifth day. And, and Ted Lilly, the ultimate competitor, I mean, you know, he gets a lot of stick for that. You see that one clip of him. He gives up the homer and he spikes his glove. It's, it, that's not petulance. That's a dude that's, that wanted to compete and the guy beat him and he doesn't like it. You're not supposed to like it. Derek Lee was the picture of just professionalism, quiet confidence, quiet leadership. I speak to Derek probably once a month to this day. Unbelievable human being. Him, his whole family, his wife, children, just great people. Alfonso Soriano. People like, you know, people don't know how good of a dude he was and people don't know how how much he was fighting off injury wise, stay on the field, particularly that year that I was there in 2009. He had ended up having surgery towards the end of the year. But I mean, that guy was a warrior, man. I mean, every night at seven o'clock, he posted up and I I just so much respect for so many guys on that team. Coy Hill, people don't know what Coy Hill 
went through to get back to the big leagues. He almost cut his hand off in a, in a uh, carpentry accident the year before. I mean, he's severe damage to three or four fingers, but I, I mean, by the grace of God, he just, I, he, and he willed himself to be, to get back to the big leagues and, and be able to serve as a major league catcher for a number of years after that. So that means so many different guys on that team and so many, for so many different reasons. You had 137 major league at bats. Your career ended in Japan. What did you get from your experience uh, playing two years there? So much. That experience was, was wow. I mean, it was baseball because they had four bases and a pitcher's mound and we wore uniforms and had bats and balls and gloves. But other than that, it was a completely different game. The, the strategy, the way they went about it, the Japanese practice more efficiently than any outfit that I've ever seen in my life. They get more done in a smaller space and a smaller amount of time than any operation I've ever seen. Immense respect for the game. And, and it showed me a different side of baseball. Like and when I say different, virtually everything they do in terms of strategy is different than what we see here at the, in, in, the, in the West, I guess, in uh, North American baseball and Caribbean baseball. So what, what was my takeaway from it? Different methods of practicing, different methods of teaching different skills throughout the game. I, I mean, we could, you could do several podcasts and just what I learned uh, over there alone, but just, just, it was an eye-opening experience. It was a valuable experience for my uh, moving forward. In my, in my professional life on the other side of the game. And one that it's funny, I say this a lot, the longer, the further I get away from that, you know, the as time goes on, the more I reflect and the more I remember like, wow, that was really impactful. So really enjoyed it. What was the cultural experience? Like? You know, the cultural experience wasn't, it was tough because the first, it was very different. So the first year we lived in, me and my, my then wife, uh, we lived in Sapporo, Japan, way up North. So just type it in a Google search and you'll see where it is. It's it's far away from, it's like two hours plane flight from Tokyo on the Northern Island of Hokkaido. Very, very nice people, very welcoming people, but it is very difficult to be foreign there because there's not a whole lot of people that speak English. In Tokyo or in Osaka, where we were the second year, if you walk down the street and you encounter 10 people in Osaka and Tokyo, you will find seven people that speak some form of English and three people that are like fluent and can really help you out of a jam. In Sapporo, you might walk down the street and there might be three people that speak a little bit of English and one person out of the 10 that you come across, if not less than that, that can really, really help you in a jam. I I got lost horribly in Sapporo one day because I had to get an adapter for my computer to hook up to my to the TV. It was a mess. I got lost. I had to. It was my translator's day off. I told him he wouldn't hear from me. Just lay low. And I ended up having to call them with my head in chain. So, but <laughs> wonderful people. It was difficult to be, it was difficult to be foreign there the, the first year, but wonderful people, very nice people. Same thing in Osaka, much easier to be foreign there because just so many more people spoke English and there was a lot of uh, expats. Osaka is one of the other business centers in, in, in Japan in the Far East. And so there was a lot of expatriates there from different countries that uh, at least spoke English as a common language. So when your career ended, you went straight into the front office and it wasn't like you took an apprentice job. You went on a path for jobs that we hear a lot about, but I don't know that necessarily the, the me's of the world know the inner workings of just to run through them. You were director of player development for three years. You were a special assistant to the GM for a year. You were a minor league field coordinator for three years and a coordinator of strategic initiatives in player development for 10 months. Let's start with player development. Okay. What exactly does a director of player development do? And what was it like to go from playing to all of a sudden now you're like in charge of this really big thing? Yeah. So the director of player development is literally just that. That's probably the one that's closest aligned with 
exactly what the words mean. Your job is to, is to oversee the de- development of every player in your system, whether it be the guy that's you know 50th round pick, which we know doesn't exist anymore, but but a guy that you sign off the street or or your first round pick. I always said this: our job in player development is to get the absolute most out of a player skill set out of his God-given skill set. So if that means making him a player that can help us enable, and that's his ceiling, that's that's our job to do that. If it means making sure that a guy who's got immense big league talent matriculates in the major leagues, it's our job to make sure that happens too. So in that, yeah, oversee the development of each minor league player, oversee the development of each minor league coaches. Minor league coaches are no different than players. They're old players that want to get back to the big leagues. Right. They want to become big league coaches. They want to become big league managers, pitching coaches, bullpen coaches, et cetera. They want to be on a major league staff for the most part. You have some guys that, that have had their run in professional baseball and they're content where they are. And that's OK, too. You know, when you ask somebody, hey, how can I help you? How can I help? What are your dreams? I want to be a big league coach. I want to be a big league third baseball coach. OK, okay cool. You know, how can I help you do that? What do you need from me? And that was my job. I mean, it was that was that was the people aspect of it. I mean, there's transactions. They're signing minor league players. There's budgeting. I mean, you have to understand what your budget is. You know, can we can we get this hack attack machine? Can we buy this piece of of technology uh, to help our minor league coaching staffs do their jobs easier? So these are all aspects of it. You liaise with the decision makers up top, with your GM, with your assistant GM. You know, hey, you know, Bobby, should we protect this guy? What are your thoughts? Or you know, if we were to make this trade, what would it do to our system? I mean, all of these things happen during the draft. The back end of the draft is really where you assess the state of your system and, and where we need, we need to fill holes. So it's a very, very big job. It's a burnout job. You can't people, some people do this job for seven, eight, nine years. I don't see how they do it. Cause it's literally around the clock. If you got a guy get hurt in the 10th inning and you know, you got to figure out a replacement for him. And then you have to backfill the guys in double A and triple A to, to, for that, for that roster spot you vacated in triple A. So it's, it's a very intense job. It's 24 seven. There's a lot of fun to be had in it too, but it's it's difficult. What does a development plan for a player look like? Depends on the player. I, I think one of the things that the industry has done a very good job of getting away from is just saying, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. Go get him, Tiger. Well, now it's, okay, what does this young man's body look like? What does this young man's mind look like? How does he learn best? What is his personality? You know, how can we, how can we get what we need out of him? And then you ask the player, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you, how do you assess your skills? Where do you want to go? And, and it, you know, you ask that question, where do you want to go? The answer to every one of them is the big leagues. Like we know that deeper though, where do you want to go? How are you going to get there? And you make them part of it. So the, the process now of putting together a development plan for a player is much more holistic than it was when I came through. You know, it's, it's making the player part of the process. It's involving mental skills. It's involving strength and conditioning. It's involving the position coaches, it, uh, both offensively and defensively. It's involving the nutritionist. It's involving the people that handle sleep studies. I mean, it's all of that. It's, it's like the, the player is the hub of the wheel and all the pieces around him, all the spokes that lead into him have information to contribute. And it's, it's, it's actually a much better process. It's, you will get, you get better results now because. Players are more bought into it because they're getting uh, more individualized attention. And also you're having much more uh, input cross-departmentally inside of a a player development department. If someone was listening who said, that's the kind of job that I'd like to do, burnout, understood, what skills do they need to do it? Listen, certainly now, obviously, a, a firm, deep understanding of analytics. The numbers mean something. The subjective analysis of people who have done it for a while means something, you know. So if I had to do it over again, I went right from playing into that seat. 
but some scouting. You, you need to do a year or two of scouting. I think it's it's massively important to understand what a major league player looks like, a triple A player looks like, double A singly all the way down. Because at the end of the day, when you see these kids as amateurs, right, you're trying to project them in, in a major league uniform with a major league body uh, in a major league environment. And that's hard to do, but you, ha- you have to understand the steps along the way. And so again, some scouting, understanding of what modern analytics can tell you. The numbers are real and they play. I think you have to juxtapose that against what you see visually as well. It's it's all it's all part of the equation. Incredible people skills. The communication aspect of that job is the single most important. Nobody cares what you know until you know they know you care, right? So you have to understand people. You have to get to know people and they're in build relationships with everybody in your organization from the intern that's that just doing driving the guys back and forth to from the facility to the hotel, to your, your general manager. You have to understand how to communicate with everybody on each level. And that takes time. It takes time. It takes maturity. The ability to, to, to manage several large, important projects at the same time. You're, there's a lot of stuff on your plate constantly when you get to that step and understanding how to manage your time, how to understanding how to triage different situations. Okay, this is important, but it's not as important as this. All of those things are, are essential to finding yourself in, in the seat that, that I was fortunate enough to sit in for three years. did that with the Angels. You were also a special assistant to the GM with the Angels. As I understand mm-hmm. it, in a lot of places, the special assistant gets us to do projects. What are projects? Whatever they want you to do. It, it, <laughs> you know, and, and it's seriously, look, let's, let's, the, the, th- the thing about those jobs are special assistant can mean a lot of different things in a baseball organization. And your relationship with the GM the level of trust he has with you. For me, with the Angels, that was when Jerry Depoto decided to to move on, and then Billy Epler came in, and it was a difficult situation. Let's just leave it at that. It was a very difficult situation, and Billy felt like he needed a different voice in the seat that I occupied. I wasn't necessarily in agreement with him, but at the end of the day, it was what it was. I, I will always appreciate Billy for you know basically telling me, "Hey, listen, I, I need your seat." But this is what I want you to do. And he was very straight up and open and honest with me. And so I said, yeah, let's let's do that. And so did some international stuff with him, some domestic professional stuff. And all of that was was instrumental in helping me become a better baseball professional. So the scouting lens, I had done the player development thing for three years. And yeah, that's for me. That's what that's what special assistant meant. It could mean something very different for for other people. From there, you came across the country to Pittsburgh. You were a field coordinator for the Pirates. Explain that. So, yeah, in 2018, I got the opportunity to come over with the Pirates. And it was a great opportunity. I was was coming to a very mature culture. It was the Neil Huntington regime. Uh, Neil Huntington, Kyle Stark brought me over. He was assistant general manager at the time. And then Larry Broadway, who was instrumental and bringing me over as well. And, and just a joy to work with as farm director. You know, I had had that job. And, and it was it was interesting, too, because this isn't Larry's MO. But a lot of people, if you're going to hire someone who's had the job before, you're kind of kind of keeping them at, at arm's length. And that was never the case. Larry included me on all types of decisions. And I think he really valued my opinion, having sat in that seat for three years and understanding what that really looks like. So it was, it was a really natural transition. Ended up being the field coordinator, did that for three years, uh, tremendous people in that organization. But unfortunately, as things happen, all good things come to an end, right? At some point, and a lot of that regime got fired. Uh, Clint, Clint got fired at the end of 19. And then shortly thereafter, Neil Huntington, they parted ways with Neil. And, and that's when Ben Sherrington, the current GM, came in and 
you know, these things happen. And as you learn in this industry, you know, when, when new regimes come in, typically speaking, they want their people, they trust in their spots. So there's kind of a seamless transition. And it was interrupted by the pandemic, of course, in 20. And by the end of 20, going into the 21 season, they had decided they wanted someone else in the seat that I was occupying as a field coordinator. And, and that's okay. That's what that's what happens, unfortunately. And so that, that's what it was. And, and I stayed on that year and I, I became the coordinator of strategic initiatives, which was an opportunity for me to stretch my legs a little bit. Much of what that job entailed was kind of looking at it as an external, as an internal consultant. A lot of times, you you know, you, you know, the bearing points, the KPMGs of the world, you know, we're all familiar with some of these really high powered consulting firms. They can, you know, they come in and, and t- tell you where you're deficient and this, that and the other and, and hopefully recommend changes and whether that you take them or not, that's up to you. Well, that's how I looked at being the coordinator of strategic initiatives. You know, what can we do? What can I identify? What areas can I identify? And what can we do to help baseball operations and more specifically player development um, become a, 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 a better, more well-rounded operation? And so one of the biggest things that I focused on was the professional development of our staff members. One, one thing that I think is really deficient in our game, unfortunately, is that, you know, a lot of times we get men and women in our in our and our ranks coaches, and we say, hey, okay, all right, you know, go coach, go do your thing. Well, you know, that's fine. But like I stated before, coaches want to get to the big leagues too. And it requires development on their part. And as their manager or as someone who has some influence in the baseball operations department, I think it's important to, to help them get where they want to go and for them to reach their goals, just as important as it is for, for players as well. So I really did, I, I used, I leveraged all my contacts and all my efforts to ramp up our, our professional development and our part of our coach education, part of the leadership training and things of that nature to, to really ramp up our player development department, the staff development of the player development department. So I was proud of that. And at the end of, of 21, it was just another situation where I think my time had run, my time had run its course, the pirates, and I was looking for a change. And I think they wanted to figure out what they wanted to do with me. And this was a, this was a, the, the opportunity to come to SIS was presented and I went in two feet and then, here we are today. So, and I'm really happy to be here. Yep. We'll get to that in a second. I did want to touch on to illustrate essentially the level of detail with which you talked about some things before I was watching on YouTube. There are two presentations that you've done on YouTube and there was so much good stuff in there. I feel yeah. like we could do two hours on yeah. and what I saw. I made three notes. I said, let me get through. Let me see if we can get through three notes just to show the level of detail with which you watch the sport and which with, with which someone who wants to be in your role needs to watch the sport. Number one, you think runners should steal more on left-handed pitchers. Why? I think runners should steal more, period. That's a whole nother discussion. We can go two hours on that too. But <laughs> I do think that runners should steal more on left-handed pitchers because the numbers tell us that the caught stealing rates aren't discernibly different. We're talking percentage points. I think what ends up happening is 15% of the population worldwide is left-handed, right? So I think that we have conditioned ourselves that the pitcher facing, you know, that when you're when you're a left-handed pitcher, you're facing the runner at first base, right? And we have just told ourselves over the course of the game that, okay, he's looking right at me, I can't go. And that's simply, it's just simply not the case, right? If you ask left, left-handed pitchers either have a outstanding pickoff move or it's terrible. It's very rarely somewhere in between. So the guys that that are terrible, they don't want to throw over. We we've heard the John Lester stories and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot more people like John Lester than there are Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit. Perfect. Yep. Just it's a ridiculous move. Stay on the base. Don't go anywhere because if you go too far, he's going to get you. 
there's way more John Lester's than there are Andy Pettit's, right? And so I, I do. I think we should. I, we yeah, I'm, I'm a position <laughs> player, so I think we should steal more off left-handed pitching. Two, watch the pitcher for his breathing pattern because there might be a tell there. Do you have a, a good example of that? Well, there, there's, there's every pitcher has a tell. Every single pitcher has a tell. Just like it's like in law enforcement, they, they tell you to look for X, Y, and Z if you think, uh, you know, someone is, is telling you a lie. Or you watch these, these poker tournaments and you see people. There's a reason these people wear sunglasses at the table. It's not because the lights are that bright. They probably know what their tells are, right? So whatever that is, I mean, there's 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 rhythms. Like pitchers will fall into rhythms. They'll hold the ball 1,001, 1,002, go. 1,001, 1,002, go. They'll breathe. Once the guy takes a big, deep breath, boom, he goes to the plate. Boom, he goes to the plate. Everybody has a tell. I just use that one as an example, but everybody has a tell. I like that one in particular. All right, number three, use Paul Goldschmidt. As an example of a base stealer you liked, why? Because he was fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know the years off the top of my head anymore, but he had years of, he's got, I, I feel like he got, 30, did he get 34 one year? 32 in 2016. Right. And so there's years, Yadier Molina had 15, 16 bags. Okay. The, the point using guys like that was Paul Goldschmidt had, Yadi's different, but Paul Goldschmidt ran well. There's no way in the world he should have stole 34 bags. But the reason he did is because he did his homework. He knew every single pitcher. He knew exactly the size lead he needed to have to be effective. He knew exactly the time home, the the pop time, the total pop time he needed from the pitcher home and the catcher down to the second base that he needed to get the bag. He knew everybody's tell and he knew everybody's move to first. What does that mean? He's a complete baseball player. And like I said before, my goal as a player development professional was to get the most out of all the skill set that God gave you and make you the most complete baseball player that I could make you, right? And that meant both mentally and physically. And the physical part is something that that's out of your control to a certain degree. The mental part, that's the part that, that you should dominate because it's completely inside of your control. And and I just felt like as far as running the bases, to be a great base runner you have to have that to be a great base, to be a good and effective base stealer and do so at a high percentage. It's more than just being fast. And that's why I like to point out, it's easy to point out the fast guys, but it's the guys who, who run well, but aren't blazers. They get that many bags and get them at the percentage at which he did that I think are a cut above. Paul Goldschmidt last year in base stealing 12 for 12, not bad. To segue to another topic, we've talked about this recently on this podcast. Black participation in baseball has considerably declined. We had Jasmine Dunstan and Josh Ruffin on a couple of months ago. They represent the future, two young people working in front offices behind the scenes. What can be done to support more Black men and women working in roles like the ones you've had? The first part is is something that they've done a, a fair job of. You have to give a shout to Tyrone Brooks and his crew over there at Major League Baseball for really trying to stock the diversity pipeline. And that's giving people an opportunity to get some of these internships at the lower levels. He's done a great job in looking in, in, in different places, but I think, I think it's on the clubs. I think it's on people like us who work in businesses that run alongside uh, of major league baseball to continue to look in, in different locations, to look at the HBCUs, to look, you know, not just at the business programs at Yale and Harvard and in the Michigans of the world and the USC's and UCLA's and all the other fine institutions across the country, but at some of the, the, the historically black colleges and universities as well. You know, the Howards, the Hamptons, the, the Morehouse College here in Atlanta, 
you know, Bethune-Cookman, Texas Southern, I mean, all over. There's tremendous institutions of higher learning all across the country. And there's also young Black men and women who are doing a, a, a tremendous job at, at predominantly white institutions and historically Black colleges. So I think it's important for us to, to look all over the landscape when you're trying to fill the diversity pipeline. But also, too, I think we need to continue to look in other industries. A lot of the people that not just work here at Forced Info Solutions, but across the industry have come from other industries into baseball, into front offices and do a tremendous job there, too. So let's continue to, to look for minorities that are that are currently having success in those jobs that are outside the industry to bring them into what is a, a, trend, a fantastic industry to work in. The final piece to this is there are some really, really talented people of color working in jobs already in baseball that want more. They want more opportunity, want more responsibility. They want the opportunity to sit in the vice president seat in the president of baseball operations or the president uh, just over, over the club in general, the general manager seats, assistant general manager seats. I can think of numerous people right now that deserve opportunities to do more than what they're doing currently at their current level with their respective clubs. So it's not just about filling the pipeline. It's not just about looking outside, but it's, it's also about looking within. There's really smart, really bright people that are doing a tremendous job. You had two that are on the, the podcast before and, and Josh and Jasmine, they're on their way to having tremendous careers within baseball operations departments and, and hopefully higher than that. There's a young man named Andrew Toussaint that I, I, I know very well, who's in the Mets organization now, he's assistant scouting director. Navery Moore in Minnesota up there with Josh as well. You know, James Harris over there with Cleveland. So there, there's, I, and I'm missing people, and I don't mean to, to, to miss people, but there are people who are very capable of having high impact, high stress, high decision, leverage, high leverage decision making roles within baseball operations departments across the country. So to wrap up, we've gone through your playing career. We've gone through your baseball management career. Now we come to your SIS career. And you're the first, at least that I know of, the first former major league player that has worked for our company. This is a big deal. Why SIS for you? The reason I was drawn to SIS was because we know just how the the numbers and the analytics have changed the way that players are evaluated. It's changed the way that front offices evaluate players. It's It's really changed the game in the last 20 to 25 years, if you think about it. And this company has been right in the middle of it. From Bill James, John Dewan, you know, their vision as to how we can help front offices and, and the powers that be make better decisions through the use of advanced analytics and, and big data. It's very impressive. And when the opportunity came across, I was like, wow, this is very interesting. And again, listen, I, I am not going to uh, insult our R&D people or our software engineers. There's, they are unbelievably intelligent people. I don't know how to do that stuff. But you know, I always see myself and I've seen myself as a caretaker of this game. I love the game of baseball. I, di- I didn't always. I was a basketball guy growing up. But when it became obvious that uh, at six feet and just an okay shooter, that I was not going to have a future in the NBA, my, my attention's turned to, to loving this game as much as possible and learning as much as possible about it. And one of my seminal moments of my career was, was early on with the angels when I was really, I was really just kind of basic stat oriented. I wanted to know batting average and I wanted to know, you know, I thought batting average on balls and play was like a deep stat. Right. And I had a seat at the table, but I didn't have a voice because I couldn't speak the language. And I had to essentially lock myself in, in an office and be like, what, what, what is this war stuff? What is this XFIP? What's a Sierra? You know, and you just dig in and you learn. You're like, man, this, okay, this stuff plays. This stuff plays. But also, too, you know, I've got a, you know, extensive experience, you know, knowing what a baseball player looks like, knowing the things that a, a guy has to get through 
to to get through a minor league season to understand how to move a player to the next dot. And I, I say all that to say this: this opportunity was 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 exciting to me because I look at this as a real opportunity to build a bridge. And not to say that the bridge isn't isn't on the way to being built, but I still think there's a large gap in the the knowledge we have from our veteran coaches and and, and what have you, and our veteran scouts, and the clarity that understanding what the numbers tell us can bring, right? I think there's a huge, I think there's a huge opportunity there. And I, and I want to be part of, of bridging that gap and making our game better as, you know, like I said, I'm a caretaker of the game. Your, your first, your first obligation is to, is to lead the game better than you found it. And I think this is an opportunity for me to do that. Uh, Bobby scales. Thank you for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Before we go, I want to make sure to tell you about our new NFL draft website, nfldraft.sportsinfosolutions.com and our two other podcasts, the Off the Charts Football Podcast and Playing in Space, our new basketball podcast hosted by Henry Ward. Both dig deep into scouting and analytical questions related to their sports. Find them wherever you get your podcasts. This wraps up the SIS Baseball Podcast. For Bobby Scales and Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.